Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today are Sandy Carielli and Janet Worthington. Sandy is a principal analyst at Forrester, advising security and risk professionals on application security, with a particular emphasis on the collaboration among security and risk, application development, operations, and business teams. Janet is a senior analyst at Forrester advising security and risk professionals. She covers product security, proactive security design, securing new development methods, securing testing in the software delivery lifecycle, and collaboration between security, development, and product management. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Clayton. Glad to have you both. Before we get started into the meat of things, would you give our listeners maybe a little bit more of an introduction to yourself? Perhaps, you know, talk about how you got started in the industry. Maybe we'll have uh, Sandy go first and then Janet follow. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a fun story, John, and it actually has to go all the way back to when I was in college. So when I was in college, uh, I was a math major, and my favorite part of math was number theory. Number theory is not a field with a lot of real-world applications, but it does have one pretty well-known real-world application, which is cryptography. So my junior year in college, a bunch of us did a group-independent study of crypto, cryptography, not that other thing they talk about. Um, <laughs> And that sort of got me started on security journey. It led me into software development roles at companies that were doing a lot of PKI, and that's kind of how I got into the industry. And then after a few years of doing software development for PKI and for some you know, government prototypes types of things, I moved into consulting and application security. After a little bit of time away, ended up in product management for security vendors, and then ultimately working in an office of the CTO for a security vendor, where I was actually a consumer of a lot of market research, including Forrester's. And so that ultimately spurred me towards looking at Forrester and looking at research in the security space as what I wanted to do. So what are you doing today? So what I'm focusing on today, um, I am focused on looking into the evolution of the application and product security space, understanding how the market is shifting, new new changes, new developments, both in terms of product evolution, but also in terms of how security teams need to work better with development teams, with product teams, with operations teams in order to what we often call secure what you sell. That's really cool. So Janet, how did you get started in the industry? Yeah, I mean, similar to Sandy. So also in college was doing math. um, And uh, I had an advisor ask me, was I going to get my PhD in math? Um, And I said, nope, I've reached the limit of of what I can do. And he said, you better pick up another major. So um, computer science, I always found fun. So I picked that up. Um, And after graduating, I worked as a quality assurance engineer um, on for billing software back in the day where you used to have to install it on HP machines and set up the database and and the fun days. 
back when waterfall development was still happening and QA was like squeezed to like from like a month to a day. Um, and so from there, I uh, went into more management and then I went into customer facing. So um, I went and was like working with programs and, and customers. And then I moved into product management um, and I've been in product management for about 10 years now. Um, and my last couple companies I worked at, the last one was a workplace software company called Robin. And it was kind of a fun, um, a fun company because we were helping people come back to work. So during the pandemic, if you wanted to come in, like, how do you decide where you're going to sit? How many people can be in the office? Um, and then prior to that, I was a product manager at uh, Vericode, which is an application security company, which is sort of what led me to um, Forrester. That's so cool. So what are you working with on these days uh, at Forrester? Um, so I'm trying to take a little off of Sandy's plate. Um, she's a she's a tough act to keep up with. Um, <laughs> I'm focusing on product security as well, um, more on sort of the pre-release testing. So things that you can do as my my audience here is my developers. Um, things you can do, you know, while you're writing code, how you can automate security as part of your development pipeline, so that you are finding issues where it's the easiest to fix. So, trying to sort of um, talk about those types of tools and processes, and I think even more importantly, the relationship between all the parties involved, um, from product to security to development. Um, QA, you know, just how does everybody work together to sort of build a, you know, a secure um, quality product? It's really fantastic. And some of us have been doing this software thing for a long time and maybe remember the days, uh, particularly those of us working on line of business applications, uh, remembering the days that where security was sometimes historically an afterthought. Uh, if if it was a thought at all, because it was all internal software, it was all hosted internally, it was all in our own data centers, it never left the, the building. Uh, whereas these days, it seems like everything is cloud first. Um, everything is being uh, written on, on our own machines and then uh, checked into repositories in the cloud and then run through pipelines and deployed to cloud servers and uh, is publicly accessible and, and security, if it's an afterthought, is way too late in the process. Is, is that kind of where we are these days? I'll start and Janet, feel free to jump in on this. Um, you know, I think where we are these days is there is that realization among most organizations that security can't be an afterthought because when it is, that's going to delay release. And the job of developers, I imagine, you know, for, for you all as well, you want to get the next iteration of the product, the next interesting, innovative feature into the customer's hands, right? So the last thing you want is to be right on the cusp of release and then do all your security testing and have someone say, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> you got to go back and fix all these things that you haven't looked at for months. That's what we're trying to avoid. So a lot of the principles at around DevSecOps today, as well as a lot of the advances in integrations and automation are with the intent that we be able to shift left, build security in, so you don't have that last minute fire drill and that last minute, oh my God, we're not going to make it in time. Yeah, no, I think you said it really well, Sandy. I think we're, as you know, 
as a product manager at my last company, we um, were syncing like six scrum teams were released every two weeks and you had to release um, to production and it had to deliver customer value. And I can tell you as a product manager, I was not sitting around, you know, hoping that the developers would be working on quality and security and accessibility and performance and all the things you guys have to think about. I was really focused on delivering that customer value, but it's all part of it. And so um, I know that the way we succeeded is by trying to do that continuous improvement where, you know, maybe, you know, you hadn't you maybe weren't doing a lot with security to begin with. And so maybe we would start with something like static analysis, which is the easiest to kind of start with, and then sort of go from there. Um, as a product manager, you under, you can understand why it's important to have your brand reputation. Customer trust is so important, but you're also pressuring developers to, you know, we need to get this into customer hands. So it's always a balance that you have to to weigh. Um, and I think cloud has made it easier for developers, and you guys probably know this better than anybody, to develop and deploy. You guys can do it quickly. You don't have to wait for anybody to spin up machines for you. Like in the old days, nobody has to install stuff. You can do it all on your own. So I think it, it puts a lot of responsibility on development, but I think um, when, to Sandy's point, when you talk about DevOps, you know, that whole shared responsibility. So it's not just development's job or security's, you know, development's job to get the product down, security's job to worry about security and QA's job to worry about testing. It's everybody's responsibility. And I think if you can build that culture, I think that's how you can kind of get ahead of it. And gosh, it's so much easier to do that now than it was 20 years ago. So back in the day, like 20 years ago, when I was doing security consulting, I spent several months at a fairly large financial institution doing code review. And I mean, printed out pieces of paper with code on them very often where I was actually going through line by line looking for issues. (laughs) We've advanced. (laughs) We've evolved. Yeah, thank thankfully. Now now we have the tools that make our lives easier. And mentioning earlier like the the software development life cycle for waterfall processes, I remember one company I worked for, we brought in consultants that helped us define the process. It was 12 or 14 weeks, I think developers were or the the first 8 weeks were defining of the process and putting together the specification documentation. Uh week 8 was for development. Uh, week eight and nine were for development. I think the rest of the time was for QA and security might have had a day or or so in there. But it seems like more these days, teams are cross-functional. Teams are diverse. There are differing roles in there because no one group of, you know, no no single group of uh, specific skill set is responsible for all of it. We're all responsible for quality. We're all responsible for security. We're all responsible for understanding requirements and delivering value. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's right, and I think that's how we got uh, SecOps, right? Um, you know, with Agile, we were able to go to iterative development, which, from a QA point of view, was a godsend. Uh, 
you know, the continuous integration where you were always building back in the day, you know, it, you know, getting a build to QA could take weeks, which is amazing to even think about now. Um, and so that iterative development, making sure that you, what you were delivering, the customer wanted. So like working with the customer along the way was really helpful. And then with the dev, with DevOps, you know, what I saw from as a product manager is it allowed us, you know, we got to the point where we had automated a lot of the pipeline. So we could go pretty quickly from code um, to deployment. But what it did for us most was not so much the speed of getting things in, but if we needed to make changes. So if we needed to roll back or if we needed to make a fix quickly, we could do that. And that could have allowed us to actually iterate faster than the old ways. Um, and then with DevSecOps, I mean, Technically, security was part of the DevOps movement, but I think we all were just so focused on, you know, needing to get development and, op you know, operations working together, the scripting of, you know, your setup, et cetera, that I think security kind of still took a little bit of a backseat. And so I think now, like, as you're saying, John, people are more aware how important security is, certainly with um, some of the events of last year, it sort of helped to highlight why, you know, Log4J, I don't know if you guys had to worry about it, but, you know, everybody was scrambling and the people who were scrambling last were the ones who had good security hygiene, were the ones that were already using the tools, who already knew like, yes, we're using these open source libraries in our own products, or, you know, we are using, um, we purchased a product that maybe depends on it, for example. So I think it certainly highlighted um, the need for it. And I think the great thing about DevSecOps is it's just breaking down that one more silo. So, you know, we can do security sooner. Sandy, what do you, what are your thoughts you have on that? Yeah, no, I, I think you, I think you're right on what's really been really interesting for me for the past, you know, two and a half years as an analyst, you know, we talk a lot about DevSecOps and a lot of organizations are pretty far along in it, but we still see a pretty long tail of organizations that are they're just getting into this, just figuring this out, that are setting up inquiries with myself, with Janet, saying, hey, we want to we want to get security more integrated here. We want to be doing DevSecOps better. We want to be building into the security into the pipeline better. Where do we start? So, you know, it's worth noting that not everyone is there yet. And when we have these conversations, and for us, they're usually with the security teams, usually one of the first few questions is, okay, so how aligned are you with dev? Are you talking with dev about this? How involved are they in the decision-making? Are they on the call with you? Are you are you collaborating with them? Because that, it, that really does have to be one of the first steps in this because it's not going to be effective if security is throwing stuff over the wall. But it, it is interesting to me that for as long as DevSecOps has been a term, there are still a lot of organizations that are still figuring it out. How how do we start? I mean, uh, for those of us who maybe are still trying to figure it out, what what is DevSecOps? Can we define that terminology maybe a little bit? And then how how do we get started? Sure. So um, I think DevSecOps, you know, um, what it does is it make puts the responsibility of delivering secure, high quality, reliable code to production. The idea is that you're, it's really a culture shift again. So we had a culture shift with Agile. Um, we had a culture shift with DevOps. And it's the same thing with DevSecOps. You know, it's breaking down that final silo with security. And I think, so, so I think with all of these transformations, we talk a lot about empathy. 
And I think, John, when you, when you, Sandy and I were talking last uh, couple weeks ago, you were saying, you know, we're all busy. Everybody's busy. You know, we all need to have a little bit more empathy for each other. Like Sandy said, you can't just start throwing things at another team and, and just hope that they catch it and run with it. And so I think pulling security in, if you if you know you have an application security team or an infosec team that you can start working with as early on in the process as possible. So if you know as product is doing discovery, you know, at that early you can bring in security. From security's point of view, I think sometimes they they we tend to sound like the department of no. You know, you know, you can't release this. No, I have to do like a full assessment end to end every time you make the smallest code change, you know, wait. Um, and I think uh, security needs to have more empathy for the pressure that developers are under, that they are, or there is a product manager standing behind them saying, let's go, let's go. Um, and so I think they need to do that. And what they can do to, to help is security has, you know, the background in, you know, what is out there and they can work with the development team to say, you know, okay, you're using containers for the first time. What do we need to think about with containers, right? Like running as root, like, you know, maybe you do that in development. What does that mean if you forget, you know, when it goes into production? So it's, it's simple things like that, that, you know, security is there to kind of help think about, you know, when you move to a new, new tech stack, as well as they can also, when you look at automation tools in the past, when we talk about application security tools, a lot of them were sort of driven for security folks, um, policy heavy, compliance heavy, you know, stop the pipeline if anything, hap you know, if, if anything happens. And I think more and more they're becoming easier to integrate um, into, your, into your pipeline. So I think if you can start, first of all, talk to your security team. It's great if you guys, you know, if you have a team, if you don't, there's really some really simple um, free open source tools that you can even start with from, you know, from whether it's static analysis. And of course, the I have to mention software composition analysis because open source dependencies are really important to check. So that's kind of where I would start. Um, Sandy, do you want to add in? Um, honestly, that you, co you covered a ton there. I don't have too much to add. But, there, you know, there's an interesting thing. Uh, John, you were talking earlier about, you know, the evolution of software development, you know, moving things, checking things into the repository, deploying to cloud, putting it through the pipeline. There's a ton of dev tooling in there, right? You know, things that you're using every day. And what you don't want is to end up with a security tool that doesn't integrate with the dev tooling that you have. So one of the first things in terms of the where to start that I sometimes tell the security people is, hey, ask your developers what they're using for development, because that's your that's your security product requirements right there. What languages are you developing in? What pipelines are you using? What tooling are you using? How much open source are you using? Use all of that to actually understand your basic requirements for the security tooling that you might be looking to acquire or use. Because otherwise you're gonna get stuff that doesn't work in your environment and that doesn't help anyone. On my previous client, a uh, 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 former client, I should say, I was working with them and, and our team, we probably hadn't been maybe too focused on security. I think we were fairly, you know, had a fairly good process in place um, and we were, we were putting out pretty good code, but we probably needed to update like our, some of our security tooling and uh, kind of bring that into our pipelines. But the organization decided, and especially from, from the security um, 
standpoint decided they're going to that they really needed to crack down and really improve security as a whole and so they just sort of put issued this like stop all and that everything had to go to this like 30 day review so here we had been lit, we had been going for like pretty much continuous development continuous deployment for like 2 years um where we are basically building and deploying and you know doing all of our like automated testing and everything um and now it's like now we have to somehow inject a, a manual month review into the middle of our like pipeline and so i'm going wait like how are we supposed to be agile how are we supposed to be any of these things and how do you deal with from a developer perspective you know that security situation honestly my first response to that John is, and that everyone is how the security team loses credibility. <laughs> you know, you in modern development, we can't do that. And if anyone came to me on the security team and said they were doing that with their developers, I think my first response would be, whoa, would be, whoa, 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 full stop here. We, we often say you need to meet the developers where they are. Mm-hmm. If you have a security team that's not doing that, you know, I mean, it's going to require a higher order conversation, but I think really sending your dev team and your product team and executive team all into a room to be talking about, okay, what is our goal here? What is everyone incented to do? And how do we actually make sure that we're we're going at the same pace? Because that, what you just described is just not sustainable. Yeah. And that I could even maybe have understood that like happening many you know like 10 20 years ago but like today that really i feel like is just not i mean this was probably less than three years ago two years ago uh that 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 particular situation so what would have been a better response for that security team and what would sort of been your actions that you would you would say hey we're, we're we're doing pretty good like we're a dev team that's doing well but like what would have been a better we're using azure devops pipelines we're building out containers um, what would be like a recommendation that you would say? How would you like come in and help us? All right, I'll start and then Janet, you can jump in. Where I would start here is if there are particular uh, security testing processes that you're not doing today, maybe you find that you're still releasing too many vulnerabilities into prod because you're not getting the testing done. You know, start investigating integrating some of the security tooling more into the pipeline. But don't do that all at once and don't do that with all of your dev teams. Choose maybe your one or two highest performing dev teams and look at, say, your SAST or your SCA tooling. Work on integrating those into their their pipelines. Work out the kinks with your most productive best teams and then be able to extend that more broadly through the organization. You can't do this you know, you can't do this in a sort of big bang, everyone has everything integrated and automated on day one, because that's just not realistic. On the other hand, you can do it in a more gradual approach, prove out the concept, work out work out the issues, and then extend it out. And now you're not putting in major pauses anywhere. That's where I would go. Janet, Where? any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think you said it well. Um, I think it kind of goes back to what you were talking about before about Agile. You know, what Idle taught us was, you know, you do things iteratively, you know, you don't do the big bang. And so security coming in and doing that is sort of 
an anti-pattern to how everybody's been working. And so you can pick up small things as part of, you know, each sprint. And as a product manager, we would actually save time to say, okay, we know that, you know, keeping the maintenance, um, we have to allocate time for that. I do think that as I, my, my thinking and what I've noticed with developers, um, is that nobody wants to be the person that in the old days broke the build. You know, nobody wanted to be that person. Nobody wanted to be the person that checked in a bunch of code and failed the automated QA test, you know, so that it couldn't, you know, move on. And nobody wants to be the person that puts the company at risk, you know, because maybe they've included a library that had known vulnerabilities that maybe they could have caught or, you know, maybe they were just accidentally put in, you know, some code and didn't realize how to do, a, you know, parameterized queries to prevent SQL injection. Like nobody wants to be that person, but everybody's busy. So I think that's where sort of that partnership comes in. And then some of these tools can go as early as in your IDE. So, you know, you, maybe you guys are using Visual Studio Code. Um, I was a product manager once that actually, what we did is we provided you security feedback while you were coding in your IDE. And what I found when talking to developers was, you know, that thing is like, if you're going to show me while I'm coding something that I just did, that and tell me how to fix it. Like maybe it's a code snippet, or maybe there's a link to a tutorial where you can learn more. You know, if, if the concept is like a little bit, you know, more in depth, like cross-eyed script forgery, and you know, or there's even a hands-on tutorial. That's great. I would rather fix it before I commit the code to the repository than having it found later on because it's right in context, right? So I think that's like how you can get started. I think to Sandy's point where security fails is they come in, they start running all these tests and they're like, we found a, a thousand bugs, go fix it. And they're like, whoa, I didn't even write that code. You know, that was like so-and-so from two years ago and we didn't even think this application would still be around. And so I think, you know, you have to sort of go and do that balancing act. Um, but the sooner I think you can get feedback. Um, and I'm actually interested, Ash, what you think. Like, you know, how, do you, how would you want to start if you were, you know, you're a developer pretending you never did security? No, that was, I mean, I think you guys pretty much nailed exactly the way that I would I would wanted that situation. And, and in fact, the the direction I started going was like, okay, let's find out what reports they're running and let's start handing them these reports like run um in review. Because like the reality is like if like uh, like I am not trying to say we shouldn't have security, but like how do I how do I tell them, look, we're we're willing to comply, we're interested to comply, but we want you to we want this to be a part of our you know, process and a non-blocking one. Right. And, um, so yeah, no, that, that I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with the the response you guys gave. So that's, that's very encouraging. Yeah. And we hope people listen to us too. We think, you know, <laughs> we think that we're telling the world. So <laughs> slowly, slowly things will change. Right. Yeah. And, and Sandy, you had mentioned something, um, both moments ago and, and when we spoke previously, about how 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 can security do a better job of of meeting us where we are, meeting developers where we are? But in in that was really the first time I had heard that used in that context. Um, but I, I'm I'm realizing and recognizing, like like we said, we're, we're all busy. Everyone's a little bit more on edge these days, just, just a due, bit due to the world and the circumstances that that we're all dealing with. And I think that 
if we do have the availability and the capacity to have the the empathetic responses, we can maybe meet each other uh, halfway and and realize that we're you know we're we're same team working towards the same goal to release uh, valuable secure features out into the world and uh, make our users happy, make the clients happy, make the the customers happy, make the company money, which in turns keeps us employed and, and keeps us make, you know, bringing home paychecks. So I, I think if we can get to that level of understanding that we're all working towards the same goal, we're, we're big proponents of thing of books like the DevOps handbook and, and maybe uh, if we could talk you, you two into writing the DevSecOps handbook, that might be an option. Uh, or, or things like um, the Phoenix Project or the Unicorn Project and, and uh, specifically the character John in security that learns the valuable lesson of he can't be the brick wall but has to realize how to work in the, the confines of we need to be able to deliver. There's a number of uh, processes out there, there's a number of tools for automation, for uh, static code analysis, for scanning of GitHub repos and things like that. What are the the just a few best practices or a few tools that that this is table stakes? This is what you have to know. This is what you have to include on greenfield applications. This is what you have to start to add to brownfield applications. Well, Janet's already mentioned two of them, and they're probably the two that we tend to talk about the most with clients when we're getting them into DevSecOps, which is static application security testing, which is going to scan your bespoke code and find flaws that you might have introduced. Maybe you didn't do the proper data checking and you're potentially introducing a SQL injection type of vulnerability. SAST is great for that. So that's that's going to be very useful you know, with that custom code. The other one that we talk a lot about, which Janet also mentioned, is software composition analysis, SCA. And the purpose of SCA is majority of your code these days isn't your code, right? It's based on third-party components, a lot of open source components. You know, looking at some of the research and the analysis that's been done, there are some folks that are scanning large amounts of code and come back and say, you know, about 75% of the code that we scanned is now open source. I mean, that's, that's the scale of what we're dealing with. So if most of that code isn't yours, then it becomes really important to understand what are the potential vulnerabilities and other risks within that code. We talk about in terms of vulnerabilities a lot, but it could also be licensing. Do you have, you know, you know, do you have GPL license in there and you don't really want to have that? Do you, do you have do you have too permissive a license? Do you have too restrictive a license? All of those types of issues. So SCA is going to look through all of your open source and third-party components and say, hey, what are the potential risks in terms of licensing, in terms of vulnerability, even nowadays in terms of quality? And how do we recommend you upgrade and change it? Because ultimately what happens a lot is we pull open source libraries, we put them into our project, and then we forget about them. And we don't upgrade them until we suddenly have an issue like Log4J, Log4Shell last year, where we suddenly all had to upgrade them <laughs> immediately. Better if we're able to do that on a more regular basis. But the reality is, you know, a lot of times we, we've got all these old vulnerable libraries and we need to be able to update them in some sort of efficient way. So those are the two tools that I will mention, although there, there are also plenty of others we can talk about 
in terms of best practices, oh, integrate with your repos, integrate with your build tools. If your developers can use these tools without actually having to leave the tools that they are familiar with, that's better. If they can stay in their IDE, if they can stay in JIRA, if they can stay in their source control, if they can stay in their repos, if they can stay in their build tools, that's so much better. So that's the first thing I would throw in as a best practice. Janet, I'll turn it over to you. I'm sure you have some others. I think you'd you summarized it really well. I, you know, for Ash, I think you mentioned you guys are using Azure DevOps, the pipeline there. And I think a lot more of these, um, the CI, CD pipelines and the cloud providers are trying to do more with AppSec and, you know, Azure DevOps, um, I believe has, you know, a software composition analysis component that's part of it. If you look at GitLab, um, they will, you know, depending on your level, they will have um, static and software composition analysis as part of it that you can run. And it tries to decide like what language you're using and and run the right, right tool. And GitHub as well. I know GitHub and, and Azure kind of sort of coming together now. Um, you know, GitHub Actions, I believe, you know, that will, you know, you can set it up so it just looks at your repository and just every so often says, here are the libraries, here's where, here's where the problems are. And I think it's, um, I think that's, you know, you know, starting small, you know, doing things so that, you know, it's, it, you know, maybe it's just telling you on the repos where you have a problem as opposed to stopping everything. Now, as you get more advanced, you may want to get to the point where you are integrating some of these tools such that they will, if you try and pull down a library that has, you know, a vulnerable library, or maybe even like Sandy actually started talking a lot about this last year is about the health or the integrity of the open source library. For example, you don't, maybe don't want to take a library where it's just one developer and we saw some of that, you know, with the, I'm sure you guys saw that, the Color.js and the Fager.js where, you know, the the maintainer, he wanted a statement. And so he kind of corrupted his own code that, you know, had repercussions. And so, you know, that's, when you're taking open source libraries, you have to know not only are there known vulnerabilities, but you also have to understand the integrity of them. And sort of some of these more advanced software composition analysis tools can do that and they can block um you know, certain libraries um, from coming in. And one thing that we're seeing that's really interesting um, is we're actually seeing more developers owning the budget and actually picking the application security tools. So we actually saw a jump from, so last year it was like 27%. It was the development team was the, the buyer and the, the primary decision maker. This year it's 37%. So if you think about that, you guys are now kind of, you're the target. You're the one doing the, the at the end of the, you're the one that has to fix everything, right? You're the one that has to to do the, the work there. So it makes sense that, you know, your security team is backing you up by making sure that whatever they purchase or whatever you purchase, you know, really, as Sandy said, fits into that, to that pipeline. So it's like everything else, right? What are you going to do? You're going to automate it right? You want to forget about it. You want there to be a tight feedback loop. So, you know, issues go into JIRA unless they're really critical and then maybe it stops and you, you look at it right away. And um, so I think we're seeing more and more of that trend happening. And I think more and more of the AppSec tools are integrating easily into the pipelines and the pipelines themselves are offering more and more of these, these types of tools. 
so you were talking about uh, software composition security. Um, what what about like the containers and container like uh, vulnerabilities that are showing up in containers? And you know, there's there's a ton there's a ton there because like and sometimes those container builds are just are pulling directly those uh, software packages in, but then you're maybe also relying on, you know, containers, then you're building off of container images. Like there's, there's a lot of layers to dealing with container security. Are there tools out there for doing that kind of scanning or does the software composition tools also cover that sort of thing? So most of the SCA tools these days have advanced to be able to scan container images. And you're right that most container images these days, the word I like to use is overstuffed. Basically, you you know, think about it. You have this image sitting in there and then some developer says, oh, well, I need this piece in it. And someone else adds this piece. And then eventually you've got the whole kitchen sink in there. And when you pull these images down, again, we're all busy. So none of us are necessarily putting in the time to reduce that to you know, really the lowest common denominator and get out any of the unnecessary functionality. So you end up then with a lot of unused functionality, unused libraries that if they are vulnerable, then present some risk. So what we are seeing is we're seeing a lot of the SCA tools evolve to be able to scan container images for vulnerabilities. The other piece of this, though, that you didn't ask about is also on the production side. So yes, you want to make sure the images are pretty locked down. But then you also, when once you've deployed these, you want to have the right container security monitoring and management tools in place so that if there are issues in deployment, maybe there is a configuration drift, or maybe you discover that a container is running as root or something like that, you want to be able to spin down that container and spin up one that's clean and, and non-vulnerable. So you really need to think about container security both at that pre-release stage and in the runtime stage. What about those that are just going through school or those that are in school these days or, or looking to get into security? Is it still looking at math programs and getting into to, to crypto or, uh, you know, or are there training courses or what is the the state of affairs with regards to technology security these days how do you get involved how do you you know what do the programs look like you want the good news or the bad news <laughs> let's uh, let's start with the good news first all right so the good news is that you're starting to see some cybersecurity masters programs out there and there is a lot of training available in in security. There is also a lot of training available through other means. If you didn't happen to go through a security program in school, you can take advantage of a lot of free training that's available online. You can leverage if you're a developer in an organization and they have some of the scanning tools now include free training, as Janet was talking about. You know, you're in the IDE, you introduce an issue, you can click right to a little self-taught module and teach yourself. There are also some free, more robust training materials, even apps that you can use if you're curious about application security and go into and teach yourself a lot more about AppSec. That's the good news. 
Let's go to the bad news. The bad news is that if you are a developer, if you're studying computer science in school, you're probably not learning security there. It's not a required part of most curricula. A couple of years ago, we did a study. We looked at the top 40 computer science programs as defined by uh, US News and World Reports, I think. And we looked through all of their computer science requirements. None of them had a required security course. A couple of them had a, a, a security elective, a couple. But I mean, I don't know about you all. I remember taking computer science classes and Janet, I, I'm sure you do as well. Were we ever graded on anything about security? I was graded on getting it done and making it work. Did it compile? Yeah. Like that was my big worry. Right. Does does it compile? It does it do the thing it's supposed to do. I was never I was never graded on security and no one ever told me about it. I think what's interesting too is um I uh, you know, right now in tech, you know, it is like it's you know, so easy to find a job, right? If you're a developer, if you're in security, you know, but I think it's even harder to find security people. So while it's harder to find really good developers, it's even harder to find like that next level. And so um, some of the best security folks start off as developers and they get interested in, you know, that sort of the side where it's like, how do I think about it from an attacker trying to, you know, use my application or use the dependencies of my application to, to attack. And I think, you know, we see one of the things actually Sandy's been talking a lot about this in, in her work is talking about developer security champions. And so, you know, you're, you can't have a security person on every development team. There's just not enough of them to go around. So, you know, what you do is the security, you know, a security lead might get um, you know, a developer from each team and say, okay, let's talk about some, like, we're going to containers. What, what should we all think about when we go to containers? You know, and then you as a developer, you bring it back to your team. And, you know, just from that process, you're learning. And the best way to learn is to teach, right? So you're helping, you know, your teammates. And if there's a, you know, if the, you are using vulnerability scanners and it finds something, maybe you're the one that, you know, looks into and helps the other developers remediate. So I think, you know, that's also one way if you're at a company to kind of get into security. And I think from a career perspective, um, you know, being able to have a breadth of skills, especially in something like security, um, I think that that really will help um, advance your career. And there are also a lot, if you're just coming out of college, you know, just like there are boot camps for developers, there are now more and more, there are um, security Boot camps, they're, they're not definitely not as many. Um, the one that you know I'm thinking of is called She Security, and it's it's basically it's geared towards women and you know who've gone through a boot camp to help them get interested in security for a day. You know, you play with something called like a burp suite, and you do hands-on security. So you know everything's more fun when you do it hands-on. And so I think there's there's different ways to to try and get into um, security, but I think uh, it's a lot of fun. Being in security is a lot of fun. Um, it also can be, you know, you might stay up all night worrying about stuff, but <laughs> just kind of put that to the side. And and I think, uh, you know, it. I think it's good for everybody. It's good for everybody to understand security, just like it's good for everybody to understand quality and what does it mean to be reliable and stuff like that. Okay, roll back two seconds. What's a burp suite? Sandy. <laughs> is that, did I hear it right? <laughs> Yeah, it's basically it's basically um it's an open source tool that lets you um like mimic, you know, hitting an application 
Is that right, Sandy? Yeah, it, it, it's it's an open source tool that a lot of a lot of organizations use to do security testing. Basically, it's it's one of the it's one of the tools that's that's in people's toolboxes, and you can you you can use it as one of the approaches to testing, looking for vulnerabilities in a running application. It's easy to get started with. Is like why the people. Um, sort of use it to kind of play around with and be hands-on. And it's got a cool name, so it's catchy. Yeah, and what's nice about those, to your point, Janet, is when you're trying to get people interested in security, what more fun way than to show them how to break it? Especially, you know, if they've developed a product, if they've developed a particular application, when I was doing the security champions research, I talked with a chief security officer who said that his approach to finding security champions is he did a lunch and learn where he rolled back patches on the application and then showed the developers how they could have break it, broken into the, pre, the pre-patched version. People love that stuff. That's cool. That's fun. And that's what gets people interested. Show people how to break their stuff. That's how I got into computers originally. I'd break the computer and then I'd have to learn how to fix it before my dad found out. <laughs> Same thing applies, yeah. <laughs> and then he poured a Dr. Pepper down the back of the computer. That was that was that was the army's computer. That wasn't mine. <laughs> that is probably less fixable. <laughs> uh, actually, they coat the cards with like a resin, so you can you can dump soda straight down the computer. It doesn't even care. <laughs> and today I learned. I'm going to take your word for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't advise it, but it's you know it doesn't hurt anything. It makes it sticky, but that's about it. That's awesome. So so what else? What what haven't we covered that you wanted to? Be sure to bring up or, or make sure that uh, our listeners have something else to look forward to or research or look into. You know, I think one thing to point out, we've talked a lot about containers, but this is an industry where new architectures, new ways of building applications, building products are always evolving. Yesterday, it was containers. Now, Janet's starting to research serverless security. I've been doing a lot of research into API security. There are always new ways to build applications. We've even done some research into low-code security. So I think an important point here that we've talked about a little bit is both as developers and as security people, stay on top of the new technologies that you're starting to investigate and adopt. And at the same time you're doing that, ask yourself the question as the security team, do we have anyone with any expertise in this from a security standpoint? Do we have any tooling that is going to support it? Because what you don't want to have happen is two days before the the application goes live, you suddenly hear, oh, yeah, there are a bunch of APIs in that. And you suddenly realize we don't have any API security tools. We don't have any API security expertise. And we have absolutely no clue how to secure this. So part of staying up to date on the latest development methodologies is staying up to date on the supporting security technologies and expertise required. And that's hard. It really does require, it's why that communication and that breaking down of silos is so, so, so important. Guys, they're on to us. We're going to have to find another way to deploy apps. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, just, just kidding. Are there any resources that you might, um, point our listeners to who are looking to get started in security and maybe from the developer's perspective they're wanting to we can talk about just like 
get better app app security uh, for their applications. Um, maybe they're wanting to be more of that, you know, security champion, or maybe they're more interested just sort of like in, you know, security as a as a more focused uh, as a career. So maybe those would be the two different things. Is there are there particular resources that you would you would um, point people towards? I certainly have some that I'm a fan of. So, you know, OWASP is a great resource still. Just the OWASP top 10s, they walk through the most common vulnerabilities. There's a lot of training, a lot of information on that. The other resource, that, though, that I'm a big fan of, there's an organization called SafeCode, safecode.org. And they have invested a lot in getting a lot, a lot of like computerized training, basic you know, how-to videos, things like that. There is also, if you want to learn on your own, and you want to really dive into how to do secure coding, there are a lot of there are a lot of training materials out there. There are a lot of apps, et cetera. Some of those cost money. Some of those your organization might buy, but a lot of them have free versions. And one of the ones that I really like is from a company called Secure Code Warrior. They have an app. You can download the app to your iPhone. You can run the app and run through lessons. So if you really want to learn to do secure development, I would, I'd look into something like that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that that that's a great learning resource. Yeah, I guess I would just add. Um, I love podcasts, so I love listening to your guys's podcast. But I also listen to uh, Risky Business. I don't know if you guys have heard of those. Um, I believe it's out of us. I want to say they're out of Australia, and if I get that wrong, I'm going to be super embarrassed. But they are. You know, they just talk about you know the the things of the week in terms of security, and you know, you'll hear everything from you know ransomware attacks to um, you know when. Uh, you know, a bunch of states where um, their infrastructure was hacked because of a, I don't know if you guys heard about this, there was an application called US Herds, H-E-R-D-S. And it basically was a, a tool that all this, that a bunch of states used to track livestock diseases, not a big deal. But um, yeah, so there was a vulnerability in it and they breached that. And then they got into a bunch of the state um, organizations. So it's, you know, it's, you hear really cool things, um, you know, like a diverse of uh, diversity of different security topics. And I think they talk about it in a fun way. Um, so if you're interested just in general in security, I would listen to the risky business podcast. Um, I also like wired, you know, wired has a number of podcasts. One of them is on security. They tend to focus on one topic. And then, um, there's also something called the CyberWire daily. And, um, that can be a lot because then you realize we should just not be coding. Um, but, you know, it is good, like if, you know, as a developer and, or a security person to kind of keep up to date. But those are my favorites um, in sort of like keeping up with the, the world around us. All right. So I've got a question for each of you. Um, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Don't be afraid to ask questions. I learned a lot from a lot of more experienced people around me. I got into this industry, particularly when I first picked up AppSec. I didn't, I didn't know a lot about it. Um, so, you know, finding the people in the industry, and in some ways, it's easier now because you you have social media and you can find a lot of these folks who are, you know, very helpful. They're generous. They share information very, very freely generously. 
I think those can be really helpful, but find those folks and don't be afraid to ask them questions. And if you have, if you can find mentors within your own organization, that's fantastic. Obviously, you know, finding an organization where you're going to have those opportunities and those mentors is great. But, you know, sp spend the time asking questions and then also don't be afraid to, you know, do your own research. Do look into some of these other resources, even if it's just, you know, as Janice said, listening to a podcast on your way to the office, assuming that you're going into the office versus what I'm doing, which is walking downstairs into my <laughs> kitchen. Um, or, you know, spending, you know, a few minutes a day watching, you know, an interesting video or doing a tutorial or something like that. The resources are out there now, and it can be really, really overwhelming. So I do think the other thing I would say is that if you're interested in security, try to narrow that down a little bit because security is so broad and we're talking here about application security. And if you're interested in application security, we threw out a bunch of things that you could do there. If you ultimately decide, hey, you know, I'm more interested in risk. I'm more interested in governance. I'm more interested in identity. I'm more interested in threat intelligence. I'm more interested in, you know, being a SOC analyst. There are dozens of viable security careers, and they don't all require a computer science degree. So, in fact, many do not. <laughs> so, spend some time, if you just think security is interesting, spend some time figuring out what that means to you. And that might mean doing some informational interviews with people in different roles. And it might mean thinking about you know, what is that type of role? What does it entail? And does that suit the way I like to work? Does that suit my personality? But there, it, there's going to be some time and effort on your part to narrow down what you mean when you say, I want to get into security. No, I think that's really good, Sandy. And I ask Sandy uh, questions every day. Sometimes I ask her the same ones just to keep her on her toes. She wants to make sure I don't change the answers in between. <laughs> right. What if I ask again? Um, so when I worked at Veracode, we had a CEO, um, Bob Brennan. He is by far like just one of the greatest people you could ever work with because he really led by empathy and he had all of these great sayings. And like, I wish I had written them all down, but one of them he used to give when it came to career advice, he said, get in, your, get in over your head as much as possible because that is when you're going to have the steepest learning curve. And I found... Every time I'm in over my head, not right now, obviously, I know what I'm doing, but um, that is when I've learned the most. And that is when I've not, not only learned the most in my career, but also just personally as well about myself. And so if you can push yourself, it's, I, you know, nobody likes being uncomfortable, right? Nobody likes getting out of their comfort zone. And so you could like start small, you know, maybe you present to a group of people internally, or maybe you talk up in a meeting that's with a lot of people and you're not sure how it's going to land, or maybe you join a cross-functional team. And I think, you know, the more you can sort of like push yourself out of like what you're used to is, is when you're going to, is when you're going to learn. Um, at least that, that's what I found. And I think that's served, um, served me well. Yeah, that's awesome. I really like that. I had someone once say to me, um, to encourage your boss to push you out of the nest. Same, same type of thing, you know, en encourage your manager to give you those, ch those things that make you uncomfortable and say, yes, I know I'm going to be uncomfortable here. And I know at the time when you asked me to it, I may look a little bit scared, but I still want you to ask me to do it. 
That's uh, excellent stuff. Uh, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? So we both have blogs on Forrester.com. And if you go to Forrester.com, you will find both of our you know, bios and our upcoming research and previous research. Um, if you're a Forrester customer or if you're not, uh, links to blogs that we've both published. Uh, I am on Twitter as at Sandy Carielli, and that's probably the best place to find stuff for me. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, similar. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I uh, Janet Costello Worthington. So I uh, kept my maiden name in there for a little bit. Um, and then on Twitter, um, the Worthington is too long of a name. So it's Janet at Worthing. So it just kind of stops. Um, so yes. And, uh, you know, definitely tweet at us. Is that what is that what the cool kids say now? Guys, is it tweet at? I don't know. We we would not. Are the cool kids on Twitter? I think they're on to TikTok now. TikTok. <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> well, Sandy, Janet, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining us. We will have all the links to everything in show notes, and uh, hope to have you back again in the future. Thanks so much for having us. This was fun. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was Sandy Carielli and Janet Worthington. Sandy is a principal analyst at Forrester, advising security and risk professionals on application security, with a particular emphasis on the collaboration among security and risk, application development, operations, and business teams. Janet is a senior analyst at Forrester, advising security and risk professionals. She covers product security, proactive security design, securing new development methods, securing testing in the software delivery lifecycle, and collaboration between security, development, and product management. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>